The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is co-host Anthony Curry. On the agenda for this week, HBO's series finale of Game of Thrones and video streaming wars, India's weeks-long general election, and global economic growth versus the rise of nationalism. The Game of Thrones came back on our screens this week, the first of six episodes of the final season. It's HBO's big hit, I think, what, almost 18 million viewers uh, on uh, the first uh, night alone, before even folding in all the other ways we look at TV. It's owned by AT&T now, HBO, which is also getting out of Hulu. Hulu's owned by Disney, mostly, which now wants to do its own thing with Disney+. And in the meantime, we've had Netflix earnings this week, where it's yet again had a bumper quarter, more and more subscribers coming on board. This is one great big um, battle itself, isn't it, Jen, over eyeballs and money to pay for content for all of these different platforms. How do we make sense of all of this? Yeah, so here's how I think about it. Let's take Netflix first. Netflix is far and away the leader in all of this. And there's been a lot of talk. How much momentum does it have? Is it overvalued? You you can kind of go down and tick down all the um, negative things that people say about it. But but the, the fact is, it's been at it for a decade. Um, they have almost 150 million global subscribers. Right. Um, and they are spending money like drunken sailors with content because they know that they can't buy it from the media companies anymore because they want to keep it for their own streaming products. And what are they saying? So I think it was what, about $3 billion in the first few months of the, this year, which was relatively low for them, but still very high. Yeah, still very high, relatively uh, relatively low for them. So, I mean, I guess what my, my broader point is, it's really difficult to catch up with that. And so now let's step back and look at Walt Disney. Um, last week, they had a big investor day, and they unveiled finally their plans for Disney+. Plus. And Disney+, Plus is their video streaming product. It is part of the justification for why they went out and spent more than $70 billion on uh, parts of Rupert Murdoch's empire. Right. And, you know, effectively, they laid out their strategy. And the big takeaway from that was their price point. So when they unveiled how much it was going to cost. So $7 a month or something? Yeah, 7 bucks a month. Like the audience gas. like so a lot much. cheaper than Netflix. Ha- about half the price of, of Netflix. And, you know, Bob Iger, the chief executive of Disney, he came on and, and gave some pretty aggressive um, targets for this, for this product. And including, I think probably most relevant, is that they expect to have up to, in the top range, 90 million subscribers in five years. Okay, so that's pretty rapid growth, but also still leaves them far short of... Netflix. Right. They're still short. And that's assuming that Netflix, they're not going to say to 150 million, they're going to continue to grow as well. Yeah, of course, Netflix has been putting its prices up recently. So does that uh, pretend a price war, do you think, between the two? Well, I mean, I don't see Netflix dropping their prices at the moment because they raise them very mm-hmm. specifically. Um, and, you know, what I think it's going to be more of a problem for is Disney. So Disney is taking the price hit so they can get as many subscribers as yeah. possible. Um, but at some point, they're going to probably have to raise prices. Yeah, but they also have a lot of content, right? So, yes, you're right. They've spent a lot of money buying parts of Rudolph Mur- Murdoch's empire. But they also, of course, have their own franchises are going back decades that they can use and expand upon, whether it's Star Wars, whether it's other things. Um, 
but they're not also, also not the only ones out there. So obviously, we go back to AT and T with HBO and Game of Thrones. Yeah. You've got Amazon spending what is it a, bi- a billion dollars on a Lord of the Rings? Um, yeah, like TV reboot. show for yeah. streaming series. Yeah, Apple's getting in. I mean, as, I think as you, you came on a couple of weeks ago and you explained that you know the Apple's um, streaming product still seems to well, it's got a lot of big names in it, a lot of big stars, but very little detail about when and how much and everything right. else. But but they're there and they have deep pockets. So it does feel like we've got a big battle coming along here for the sort of the iron throne of TV streaming or whatever. Uh, yeah, and, and, the, and, and the other thing you have to keep in mind is Netflix already has a brand name. People understand what it is, what yeah. they're getting for it. Um, and, and Disney has an incredible brand. So I think Disney is well positioned there because people know what Disney is. But the, the other issue with Disney is that they have three other products or three total products out in the marketplace so far. They have Disney Plus, which is their flagship. Then they have Hulu, which I'll get to in a second. And then they have ESPN Plus. Um, so what they want to do is kind of bifurcate um, all their content. So all the sports content will go on ESPN. All the like Star Wars and kid-friendly content, Pixar, what have you, will go on Disney+. And then the raunchier stuff that's coming from Fox and you know other places is all going to sit on Hulu. Now, Hulu does not have anywhere near the same sort of brand recognition mm. that a Disney has. It's very US-based as well, I'm assuming. It's, it's all US-based. Um, it has, just to give you context, it has been around for roughly the same time as Netflix, when Netflix launched its right. streaming product. They only have about 25 million paying subscribers. Now, they've got a different uh, model as well where you can what you can subscribe and watch ads so there's right. kind of a hybrid of a of a bit but still that shows you they've got a long way to go it's also a bit of an aggregator isn't it hulu i mean yeah of, of well content, that's also so. it's, it's very confusing and here's the other thing their ownership is super confusing it's so it's got a bit better though i mean icnt is just sold out but it's still got more than one owner right well so it's still rivals. it sells more than one owner it has two owners that don't like each other yeah. so the other one says so disney owns what two disney thirds of it and the rest now is... owns yeah about yeah two-thirds of it and then comcast which, if just as a reminder to everybody listening, that they were bidding against Disney for Fox and they were right. bidding against Disney for Sky, they own the remaining um, chunk of Hulu. Right. So that makes it probably far more difficult to develop that into a big hitter, necess- I suppose. Yeah, I mean, because you have competing interests, yeah. right? And so that, that makes it difficult. And so, that, you know, you have that. So you kind of set that aside. And now you have, this is my favorite part, the Game of Thrones, right? right? Which is like, it's been such a huge hit for HBO. And um, it's coming to an end. And, you know, HBO has been through these cycles before. Uh, the Sopranos is probably the most notable uh, one where this was about a dozen years ago. When it was ending, everyone was like, oh, my gosh, this is the end of HBO. Yeah. What are they going to do? What are they going to find? And then sure enough, here comes Game of Thrones, which is even way bigger than yeah. than the sopranos. So now the open question is can they find their next kind of game of thrones and yeah. keep people hooked into HBO. At the same time as all these other various platforms are ramping up other, spending lots exactly. of money and trying to come up with their own original content I suppose that I mean, but then again from for from HBO's perspective the market has entire, completely changed in the, what is it, eight years since they started airing Game of Thrones. So it has now gone to streaming. It's gone to individual content on individual platforms. Yeah. Um, so maybe they don't need to have as big a one-hit wonder as they have in Game of Thrones? Or is everyone still hoping there's always going to be one big hit, whether it's Lord of the Rings for Sure. You, I think anybody Amazon. wants the game of the next game yeah. of thrones i mean that's sort of the model and that's particularly why amazon spent like a billion dollars um to to go off and redevelop something that pretty much has already been 
done by Warner Brothers, by, yeah. by the way. I mean, they'll probably do a different aspect to Lord of the Rings, but still, it just kind of shows you that these big, sweeping, epic, you know, dragons and rings and monsters and zombies and whatever, it translates well globally, and I think that's kind of where people are sort of thinking yeah. this could, this could uh, be very Until beneficial. that stops and something else comes along, I suppose. But yeah. that's that's part of, their, of all these platforms' jobs. They've got to find out, well, first of all, find out what the fads are, but also, I suppose, to some extent, create the fads to make sure that people come back. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Jen, let's leave it there. I'm sure we'll be talking about this in the future. There are so many different permutations to these various TV and streaming services. So thanks for talking us through that. Next up from Asia, the Indian election. It's a massive extended affair in which incumbent Narendra Modi's BJP party is facing off against Rahul Gandhi of the Congress party. Modi looks likely to retain power, but in a weakened state. Foreign investors and Indian citizens still have lots of demands. And then there's the recent military conflicts with Pakistan. Take a listen. I'm Pete Sweeney. I am here in Hong Kong, and I'm talking to Yuna Galani uh, in Mumbai. Um, on the menu is the the ongoing Indian election. Um, it's just got started in April 11th, I believe. It's going to run for another five weeks. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, Yuna, what's going on on the ground? Hi, Pete. Yes, uh, we are gripped with election fever. We have about 900 million people going to the polls. One tenth of those almost are first time voters. And this is just a gigantic democratic exercise, which is unofficially expected to cost about $8 billion. Some estimates are going as high as $10 billion. That's double the outlay of the 2014 battle and much higher than any of the official limits on election spending are. But for the most part, India's polls are considered free and fair. Um, But the Election Commission is, as usual, busy seizing halls of cash and liquor, which are all used by candidates to bribe voters. Um, This year, we've also seen some rulings on unusual campaign methods by the ruling BJP party, including the banning of the release of a biopic film about Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and also um, they've been forced to police content on the newly launched Namo TV. Um, so Indians are basically, in India, we're technically voting for a party here, but I think the spirit of general elections here have become very much presidential. Well, and so, you know, this would mark a, a big re-election for Narendra Modi if he, if he is to win. Um, what are the big issues? What are What are voters listening for from him and and his opponent? Well, that's a great question. I mean, in 2014, when Modi swept to power, um, promising clean government and development, that was on the back of um, a fairly poor term for his predecessors, which became mired in uh, corruption scandals. They were, of course, the Gandhis that had sort of the the dynasty that has dominated Indian politics uh, since independence. Um, And so the narrative then was very, very clear. And um, Modi, to some extent, has delivered clean government and development. It's not perfect. But I think this time, the biggest issue is probably jobs. Um, the, the data we have on jobs is pretty unreliable. Um, it's often contradictory. But unemployment certainly ro- rose after Modi's dramatic uh, banknote ban back in 2016, if you recall. And then that was very quickly followed by the rollout of a goods and services tax, which was a very necessary structural reform, but one that compounded the pain. So perhaps more than unemployment, maybe even a bigger issue in this election is underemployment and the low quality of jobs that are available um, to this young population. Well, and there's a lot more issues that have come into play, um, certainly. I mean, you've got a, a military confrontation with Pakistan that, that went on recently. Um, 
you know, there's been he's he, his messaging seems to have changed, at least to me, an outsider a little bit. There's there's been some some strengthening of, of the nationalist uh, Hindu nationalism message. I mean, to what extent is his pitch to voters tweaked or, or changed in, in 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 this this round? So I think, to be clear, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, Modi's party, has always been a right-wing Hindu nationalist party. So uh, nothing has really changed, but the debate has become more fervent. I mean, in some respects, this election is being widely seen as a battle for India's soul. Now, that may sound a bit dramatic, but uh, Narendra Modi has been a polarizing figure, and many think his party is pushing this Hindutva agenda, the idea that India, officially a secular country, is first and foremost for Hindus over the sizable Muslim and Christian minority. I mean, his government is also criticized for undermining institutions. But I mean, to your point on the Pakistan issue, I mean, certainly it seems like um, support for Modi has risen in recent weeks following airstrikes that India launched against Pakistan. And um, that very much plays to his strongman status. And what is the opposition saying? I mean, what's, what's the position of the Gandhi, the Congress party, um, you know, do they, what kind of a chance do they have to dent him? Well, the Congress Party uh, have been a dominant force in Indian politics, but it's not clear that they will be a strong opposition in this election. Markets are actually pricing in that Modi will return, probably with a weaker mandate that strips the BJP of its majority. Uh, that was the first by any government in three decades, which they won in 2014. Um, and it looks like the BJP will be forced to form a coalition government. That's at least what the markets seem to be telling us. The opposition Congress, now led by Rahul Gandhi, is finding its stride, but it's still weak. Um, and elsewhere, we've seen a number of opposition leaders, including West Bengal's fiery Mamta Banerjee. You know, they've joined forces, uniting in their united in not really much apart from their contempt for Modi. So there's definitely room for some upset here. Um, but essentially, this election is kind of best viewed as a battle for or against Modi. Um, and as you said, um, the airstrikes in that sense have certainly helped him gain some momentum after they performed poorly in the December polls at the end of last year. All right. Well, thanks for laying it out for us, Yuna. We have Swaha Patnaik in from London, who, uh, who's been over for the World Bank IMF meetings, spring meetings in DC, has come up to see us. We've got you to come on to talk about how um, global growth is slowing and everyone's getting worried about it. And there's more and more calls, both from the IMF and from various countries, political and economic leaders, for more cooperation, but they can't agree on what cooperation is. Is that basically the, the, the fear we're trying to distribute this week? I mean, that there's just everything seems to be a mess and no one knows what to do. Is that what, where we're coming, coming from? Yes, uh, you've got it spot on. Basically, a lot of the concerns about global growth are stemming from politics. So you have tariffs from the Trump administration on China or Europe. You have other things like Italy, which is the, the risks stem from a political place as opposed to tightening of monetary policy or some sort of economic isn't shock. something going on in Britain? I forget what it is. Isn't there some issue there? Oh, we've left that for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, of course. A six-month punt on that Brexit. Is an, that is an awesome date. I know, exactly. So that was actually not front of brain at the IMF meetings because it, we've just got a little more time to worry about yeah. that later. So what is, however, a concern is that the normal macroeconomic policy levers, technical term for fiscal policy is spending more or monetary policy, which is lowering rates, has very limited capacity to stimulate growth. 
And so you're left to the politicians to sort out a political mess. No reason on earth, you know, why the political paradigm should change and suddenly trade should be, uh, you know, viewed differently by President Trump. So, Swala, how has this changed and how is this different than, say, past meetings and maybe even the past decades? Like, what, what have you noticed that is different now I among think, these countries? Yeah, that's a good point. I think one of the things is that what's staying the same is everybody agrees global cooperation is needed and must be done. What yeah, is, everyone? What about Trump? He's more. In oh, no, no. Everybody right. agrees global cooperation is good. The problem is everybody thinks global cooperation means what they mean by it. Right. So... What you're getting a sense of is in the past, as you say, we had a worldview, especially at IMF meetings, at the high level of finance uh, around the world, that globalization, so greater connections between economies, free flows of capital, people, they were good. So they benefited everybody widely, what you'd call win-win. Now there's more of a sort of change in mindset whereby particularly emanating from the states but it's not just confined to the mm. US where people admit that this is not necessarily a win-win and the, even the IMF which is an arch proponent of globalization admits that middle classes perhaps in advanced economies have been squeezed by some of the trends in globalization. So you see sort of a more insular approach to fiscal policy? Is that one way of putting it? Yeah. And you see people looking out, well, what is in my interest? What you call in game theory, zero sum thinking that if I'm losing, you're winning, we can change this. And if I win, you must lose. And that's how we decide how this game's played rather than, oh, well, if we all do this, we're all giving something, but we will all come off better. And that's the change, I think, since a decade ago. Okay. And that's 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 also the the problem you're you're going into on, on gets into populism, right, and why politicians are now probably even more so part of the problem because they see in certain countries like the US especially, but certain parts of Europe as well, that um, people are disaffected and they are making more noise about it and they are voting for more extreme groups, whether the left on the left or the right. Um, and so politicians feel they have to somehow combat that or respond to that by being more insular. Yes, more insular, more interventionist, perhaps. And, you know, this is not just about the US. In Europe, you have countries that want national or regional champions. Mm. That's one way of putting up a barrier, even if it's not like a tariff barrier. Brexit is like barriers and, yeah. you know, a plenty if you're talking about reversal of globalization. China has its own policies and tends to do what is right for its economy. Mm. You can say that's normal. These countries all have to do what's right for their voters. But it definitely doesn't make for global cooperation if people yeah. are doing that. And there was an interesting um, uh, little, uh, I say little, it was actually, if you think about it, it's actually quite large, but the the, um, the example you gave of sitting in a couple of World Bank meetings last week where um, the economics or finance ministers from various European countries you think would normally be on this or ought to be on the same page were giving vastly different ideas about what cooperation means. Exactly. I mean, that's what was most striking when you get sort of hundreds of finance ministers sitting in sort of one ginormous building and they're all talking. The, the contrast is stark. So the example you mentioned is the French finance minister who wants a European pact for growth. Sounds great. Who would disagree? His view is that countries that have large trade sur budget surpluses should be spending more. Sorry, it's spending more where? Investing within the country, investing Invest, within the EU? Investing like within the country, government spending. Generally, the French finance minister was talking about investment. However, the very next meeting I went to, 
literally in the same building was with the Dutch finance minister who's ru- whose country is running a budget surplus of around 1, 1.1% of GDP. And he is adamant they will not let go of spending mm. and let rip. Um, and they have a different view of what cooperation means. For them, it's more about being, you know, disciplined, observing the fiscal pact. Uh, of and, the and the same, of course, with the, the economic giant of Europe, Germany. Absolutely. So they are adamant that they are being fiscally accommodative by spending yeah. 0.2, 0.3 percentage points more of yeah. GDP. So there's and, they're, a, and they're also the ones pushing for a national champion. Well, I say champion. Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank is, is, is an idea, a merger that, that the government is in favour of to create a, a national, again, I hesitate to call it a champion because they're both kind of two drunks propping each other up, I suppose, if they merge. But um, there is a desire to have a so, national merger as opposed to a, a cross-border. cross-border merger. Yeah, which some people say the French might think allowing a Franco-German champion yeah. to emerge might be better. I mean, that's up for discussion, but you're absolutely right. Or you could say the merger that both the French and Germans wanted of the Siemens Alstom train rail bit businesses. Right. I mean, they were very, very politically behind that. It fell apart because the commission blocked it. But yeah, yeah, it's something that is not necessarily confined to just a U.S. view of, you know, what is good for my country is... Um, so, Swaha, one thing that jumps out at me is that the economy is humming along now. I mean, it, in theory, the global economy is doing okay. We're out of the recession. And all these finance ministers are kind of arguing over, like, some fine points here, but they seem like major fine points. So what happens when things go south? I think the problem here is there's a lot of distrust between different regions. Advanced economies are looking at China, which is now 13 trillion rather than 1 trillion, Mm. roughly, when it joined the WTO. China thinks, you know, the US is setting monetary policy for itself with no care or concern about spillover effects. So getting the, the coordinated view that you had immediately after the financial crisis when 10 central banks Russian cut rates at the same time, mm-hmm. that's becoming harder and harder to contemplate. You can say, well, maybe this is everybody will do what's right for them and we'll come up with a slightly suboptimal solution, but it will be better for voters and there'll be more sort of backing from people at home. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be one argument, but it definitely doesn't make for the optimal economic outcome. Okay, Swaha, thanks for uh, coming over to the States and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Swaha Patanaik, Pete Sweeney, and Yuna Galani. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.